The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we have come before you. We have come to worship. And so, Lord, as we come to this specific time in our service where the Bible is open, your word, your revealed word, opened and preached and proclaimed. Holy Spirit, do a work through this effort. May it be the preaching of your word that helps us as a congregation, helps us as individual Christians to live out this life that you have given yourself for, you've purchased by your blood, as has been stated many times already this morning, that we would be fully equipped to live out our faith, to live out our faith in our homes, in our places of employment, in our community, that we would see your name high and lifted up, that you would be glorified. So God, we ask that you would do a work through the preaching of your word. We thank you for the gift of scripture and this beautiful story. May it be told in such a manner that it leaves a lasting impression upon us as your body. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please take a seat. As we're getting started, yesterday I was able to send out a WhatsApp. I do that every once in a while with a, a song, and it was about uh, the Sunday morning worship gathering. And just as I stated, we were, we were dancing in our kitchen, getting prepared for today. Well, me and the kids. Um, but then I was just thinking about the paradoxes of the Christian life that Seth was talking about during our, our, uh, our um, prayer time. And so even though I was dancing, I injured myself back in August playing at our Tuesday night gatherings down at the Parkdale Elementary School, ultimate tag, somehow I hurt my leg. So even though I feel like I'm pretty strong, I was dancing, and the Christian paradox is that dancing put me down on the ground. Like, so much pain went shooting through my leg, but I was still praising the Lord. <laughs> so that's not part of the sermon, but I just figured I'd show that, share that as a Christian paradox in real life happening yesterday in preparation for this day. So church, this is a beautiful story. You heard the scripture read. Thank you, Seth, for reading that. And uh, 67 verses. And our... Our method here at Pillar Bible Fellowship is to preach through the texts, but as we've stated from the beginning of preaching the book of Genesis, that we were going to take larger chunks. So there is just no way for me to, to preach verse 1 through verse 67. So this is one of those days where you're going to see me moving through the whole chapter, but it's not going to be uh, a minute or two per verse, because you do the math and that would leave us here quite late in the day. This is a beautiful story. And I would say it's beautiful because it's highlighting steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. They, they continue to stand out from the pages of Scripture as validation of a successful life, of a life lived well in accordance with God's way of doing things. That's how we should live before the Lord, with steadfast love and faithfulness. And since he is the judge of all the earth, and he uses these criteria, which are very much characteristics of himself, as he reveals himself in Scripture, they are to work our way, their way out of us, for those of us who are called to be followers of the one true God, steadfast love and faithfulness. And I believe that when we take in, into consideration the background of where we are here in Genesis 24, where we are in Genesis in, in particular, it provides us a wonderful place to explore where steadfast love and faithfulness get played out in the Christian life. So bear in mind, Abraham has just buried his beloved wife, Sarah. So this has just happened. This is just, just right in the previous chapter. 
just buried Sarah. He's a sojourner in the land. He's a sojourner in the land of Canaan, where God had called him to be. And the only thing he possesses there is a burial plot. So that's all he has. He's got a dead wife, and the, the land where she has been buried is his possession. And the title, the father of a multitude of nations that God has bestowed upon him, has resulted in one legitimate son, Isaac, and no further offspring. So this is the backdrop. This is what is going on in the life of Abraham. Now, if we were to take all that in, you might say, that sounds like a lot of setbacks. I mean, there were a lot of promises made to, to Abraham by God, and this is where he's currently standing. If you were just to kind of take a look at the evidence. And we all face setbacks and hardships. And we all face circumstances in life that we just don't anticipate them being the way they are. But there they are. They're, they're almost hitting us in the face. And when this happens, do we then say, well, now I'm not going to trust in the Lord because of my circumstances or because things aren't unfolding as I had anticipated them to? And this most certainly is the temptation. We're each faced with that as a temptation because when the pain of life cuts deep, we as fickle people can struggle to maintain our faith, maintain our faith in God. We can struggle to maintain our faith in God and his promises and in his plan. But in the scripture reading, the story captured in Genesis 24, what you likely tuned into was the stellar manner in which everyone conducted themselves. Did that come out from the, the scripture reading? The stellar manner. So we have, we have the servant. He was behaving in a stellar manner. Abraham was very much focused on the promises of God and wanted to do what was right. Rebecca, we're introduced to this woman, Rebecca, and she does everything you would, would hope that a, a young woman who's being called into the covenant promises of God to be wed to Isaac would do. She did. And then Isaac, you know, here's this woman. I don't even know if he knows that the servant's going out to fetch a wife for him, but she comes back and, and Isaac says, yeah, this is, if this is the plan, I'm all in. Everyone's conducting themselves in a stellar manner. And in light of the setbacks that I was just talking about that have faced Abraham, which we're all too familiar with, we know that setbacks can face us too. But here in this story, we see, see almost like an ideal picture. So the setbacks kind of have taken a step back, and then the, the faithfulness of God's people acting in accordance with steadfast love and faithfulness is put front and center and on display. And so there's a truth that I'd like us to take away from the study of this passage, and that is to prove your faith and watch the Lord's will be done. Prove your faith and watch the Lord's will be done. Because that is what's being put on display, I believe. All this stellar action, but it's proving faith. And watching, waiting and watching and expecting the Lord's will to be done. 67 verses is a lot. So I wanted to give us, before we get to our primary text, a summary passage but if you're like, I can't remember exactly everything we covered on Sunday, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I think this encompasses very well what we're going to be covering here in Genesis 24. God's word says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That is, in, a, in six small verses, really packed down what we're going to see in this larger passage of 67 verses. 
We're going to look at it. Like I said, we're going to take some, some chunks. The first one is focused on the promise, verses 1 through 9. The second chunk we're going to look at is faithful servant, verses 10 through 57. And then lastly, forming a new covenant, 58 through 67. So back to our primary text, chapter 24 in Genesis. In these first nine, verse, nine verses, what I want you to be thinking about are the promises of God that God has made to Abraham. So first and foremost, God called Abraham from the land of his upbringing. God called Abraham from the land of his kinsmen. And he made a promise to him that he would make him a great nation. So this is one promise. Abraham's holding on to that promise. And he promises that he's going to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. That's back in Genesis 12, 3. And then through, through these, what we've witnessed as Abraham has been walking in these last 12 chapters by faith, holding on to these promises, has been a steady progression of Abraham's focus upon the promises of God. Not a perfect obedience. There's there's no perfect obedience. We haven't held up Abraham as saying he is the ideal, but his faith is what we hold up. His faith in God is what we're holding up and is what we hold on to as well. God is faithful, and Abraham grows in his response to God and steadfast love and faithfulness. And the scriptures count or claim that is counted to him as righteousness. And that's not only covered in Genesis, but we see that also uh, re, um, recorded for us in the New Testament. James 2.23 and Romans 4.3 both say uh, that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So even at, though Abraham was old, advanced in years is what the passage says, seemingly close to his end. Well, we're going to pick up some more details on Abraham's life next week. But what's on his mind is the end. I mean, he just buried Sarah. So he's got to be thinking about his own mortality right now. And what he has is a son, Isaac, who has not been wed. But very much, there are promises, and he's focused on these promises. And so he wants to see the promises move forward. Not that he wants to force it. He's not taken a wife from among the Canaanites, but he, he thinks it's important that, that his servant goes back and takes a wife from where he came from. So he commissions his servant. His servant, who is unnamed, the servant is unnamed here, and this, I believe, is on purpose to draw, us, draw our attention to the ideal conduct of this faithful servant. And we're going to spend a great deal of time on him on the next point. But here, Abraham commissions the servant to find a wife suitable for Isaac. And from his father's household, not wanting his son to be married to one of the Canaanite women. In many ways, this foreshadows the law that has not yet been given, but it will be given to Israel, that they should not give their sons or daughters in marriage to the inhabitants of the land. So when they come back after, the, after their time in Egypt, and then they're supposed to reconquer the land, there are laws given, and those laws specify that they are not to take uh, um, daughters from the Canaanites or give their sons in marriage to the Canaanite peoples. And we're going to be looking at some of the applications of marriage, specifically a little bit later on that third point when Rebecca and Isaac consummate their marriage in the last point. But here, here Abraham is preeminently focused upon the promises of God. Now, as the text says, he was advanced in years. He has a singular aim before him, the promises of God. He's a covenant partner with the Lord. And he is seeking a proper wife for Isaac. And he wants to keep and direct his family according to God's calling on his own life. So as Abraham realizes that God has called him to act in a certain way, to follow along in the, in the footsteps of steadfast love and faithfulness, he is wanting to lead his family in the same. And that is, is a great um, appeal to us as heads of households, as we want to see our families walking in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abraham was taking really the lead here 
and directing the course to make sure that there was going to be a following after of the Lord, to see that the covenant promises of God were going to be advanced, that the offspring that were promised to him would come about. Not that he was forcing it, but he was facilitating the onward movement. It's a good application for us as heads of the household, as husbands and fathers, to be directing our families similarly. And he is adamant that his son is not to go back to the land from which Abraham came. It comes out in the dialogue with the servant. The servant is to go back to Abraham's country where he came from and take the wife from there. But Isaac, in verse 6, says, Isaac is explicitly told not to go, not, uh, Abraham is told um, to the servant, don't take Isaac back. See to it that you do not take my son back there, in verse 6. And again, in verse 8, only you must not take my son back there. There's an emphasis, a heavy emphasis, that the servant is not to take Isaac back. And why is this such a big deal? Why would Abraham think this is so important? Well, one concept we have in studying God's word is try to use texts that shed more light on what we're studying. So I'm going to flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. There's a very clear statement in Hebrews chapter 11 in verses 13 13 through 16 that says some of the reasons why they shouldn't go back or seek the other land. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author writes, these all died in faith. So talking of the descendants of Abraham, Abraham and his his people, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking, so this is why I think that they're, they're not, he's not wanting him to go back. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So Abraham is focused on the promises, the promises of God, knowing that there is a better land. Even though he's a sojourner, all he has is the burial plot and a son who has not been wed yet, he's not to go back. The author of Hebrews makes that very clear that there is going to be a better land to come by being steadfast and faithful and following after God's leading. Abraham and his descendants were seeking that better land. And it was formative on their actions. And so I asked, do you have this same tenacious attitude yourself? Do you also seek that better land that God has for you? Do you want to see it fulfilled as he promises in his word? You see here, Abraham was emphatic that Isaac was not to go back. For he was pondering the promises of God. He recognized that it was was God who called him out of that land and away from that people. And therefore, he was not to go back. Likewise, his son was not to go back. Emphatically, Abraham tells the servant, you must not take him back there. So convinced was Abraham in the working of God in this endeavor, even in the back and forth between him and the servant. He says... God will send an angel before the servant. He tells him that. He's like, I'm so convinced that God's blessing is upon this this journey that I'm sending you on that God will use one of his angels to make sure it takes place. Abraham's faith was secure. And he boldly claims this this blessing of the Lord on the whole venture. And, And for that, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged that Abraham was standing there in such a place that he says, I'm going to prove my faith. I'm going to prove my faith and watch expectantly as, as the Lord's will is done. And I, I know that's, that's exactly where some of you are being challenged right now. You know, something needs to happen. Some area of life that you're being challenged on in your faith. 
And so this is that truth that I was talking about. We want to be like Abraham and, and saying, God, I'm struggling, but I want, to, I want to prove my faith. I want to prove my faith and watch expectantly to see your will be done. We want to be like Abraham in this way, struggling with unbelief, but trusting that God has directed certain aspects of our life to prove our faith. I know I've been dealing with this, especially this last week at work in the military, just trying to prove my faith, not sure exactly how everything is going to come out, but knowing that God still has me in uniform for a reason, for this time. And I'm looking expectantly to see what he was going to do through that. Now we're going to shift our attention away from the faithful servant, or away from here and to the faithful servant, away from these promises of God to the faithful servant. I want you to think about what kind of influence Abraham must have had on this man. He's said to be the servant of Abraham, the oldest of his household. And I think Abraham must have had a, a tremendous amount of influence on this man in just the life on life discipleship that took place in having this servant working for Abraham, being the oldest in his household. And it's clear that as they were working together, discipleship was taking place. This servant was taking on board the faith of his master. He was bound to. I mean, all these promises that Abraham's clinging to, he's got to have his servants kind of going along with him. And they're like, what's going on now? Well, God said, so we got to do this. And so they're having to like, and then they're witnesses to this. And, and every time, God is faithful. God is faithful. And the servant has this wonderful gift given to him, the gift of faith. And that's why I called him the faithful servant here in this, this second point. He's the unnamed servant, and he's clearly set on carrying out the oath that he's made to Abraham. Notice what the faithful servant does in verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. What we see this servant doing is he's taking the practical steps, taking the practical steps required to make such a journey. He prepares for success by bringing along the bride price. So he packs the camels with the price that would be rendered to the bride, fully trusting that if, if I'm being sent on this, God is going to bless it, and I need to be prepared to pay the bride price when I get there, fully expecting the Lord's favor. And, and this is good. Anytime we're, this is a good thing for us to observe, church. Anytime we're charged with a task involving faith, it nearly always manifests itself in real action. Real action has to take place when our faith is put on display. Whether you're hired to do a job or whatever it might be, if we're acting in faith, then we have to take practical steps. We have to take these practical steps. We have to move forward, and then we have to pray and do as we've been commissioned to do. There's this application here of, of praying and doing. Not wanting to dismiss that in any way, but rather I want to add to it what we see in terms of the servant's expressed faith as we look at his prayer, picking up in verse 12. So he, is, he takes practical steps, but this, this prayer is a wonderful prayer, and it goes from verse 12 through 14. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Do you see how the servant begins the prayer? He begins, O Lord, God of my master, 
Abraham. And this is not him hanging on to the, the shirt tails of Abraham's faith, okay? This is not that. It's a heartfelt, it's a fully embraced prayer of one who is honoring the Lord as well as the one who has, has introduced him to the Lord. It's a clear testimony of, of God doing a work in this man's life through that life-on-life discipleship that took place between Abraham and him. Life-on-life involvement. The promises were made to Abraham. The servant was witness to those. Abraham was walking according to the promises. And I have no doubt they were explained manifold times to the servant. Well, here we go again. We're off because God says this or that. And he stood by and witnessed God working. And God's working witnessed to him in such a way that he had faith in God, the God of his master, Abraham. It's a wonderful thing. And it happens all the time here in in our homes. Parents, you are putting on display your faith in God. And your kids are observing that. You are putting on display and you are witnessing to your children what it means to be a faithful follower of God. So here he's praying this wonderful prayer. He's appealing to the very character of God. So that's what the next thing I want us to notice when he, when he prays, not only you know, to, to his, to his, that he would bless his master, but to the character of God. God showing his steadfast love. That's a very pivotal part of the prayer. It, it starts the prayer and it ends the prayer appealing to the character of God. And that should be in our prayers as well. When we pray, pray into that prayer one of the characteristics we know of God. And God is steadfast love and faithfulness. He shows that over and over again. But do not overlook, included in the prayer, what we see is wise criteria for a desirable wife. Okay? So, Appealing to the character of God, but then in there, wise criteria for a desirable wife. There are echoes of Proverbs 31, of of what this servant's looking for. Abraham doesn't give him any specifics, but he is in Abraham's house. He would know what his master would want, what would make for a good wife. And so he prays. He prays for a woman who would be diligent and about her work while also being compassionate and caring of a traveler who's in need of water and the camels that need to be cared for, the beasts of burden. So that's right there in the middle of it. Very specific, too. And then the prayer ends with another appeal to the character of God, to his steadfast love. Just a quick aside, hospitality is running deep and rich in this text. It's not going to get a lot of coverage, though, here. But if you're wanting to to bone up on your hospitality, look at how hospitality is played out in this text, whether it's in your community group this week or just in preparation for hosting someone in your home. Look at the highlights of hospitality as they come forth in Genesis 24. Now, here I'm impressed by the outworking of the servant's faith. And I desire this type of discipleship as well, to abound here in the church. I desire this type of discipleship, which I'm sure occurred, to abound here in the life of the church, working itself out in the families of the church. And when we're so blessed by the Lord to have relationships outside of the church, that this type of discipleship would occur there too. Whether we are training somebody, whether we're tutoring, I know there's a lot of tutoring and and, uh, work that goes on through classical conversations. There can be relationships where discipleship is occurring there in the community, in our workplace. We want to see these types of relationships, this life on life taking place between, just like between Abraham and the servant. Paul spoke of this kind of relationship in the beginning of his, his book of Romans. If I can find my bookmark for Romans chapter 1. This was uh, very much an encouragement 
for, for Paul to put forth to the Romans that faith would manifest itself in the sharing of that faith with others. In Romans 1, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son. That without ceasing, I mention you. And we would mention each other even as we are ministering out in the community. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may know at last, now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That's, that's the heart of Paul, the apostle. And that's what we see coming forth in, in the outworking of this servant who was faithful. He was wise. He was seeking the Lord's blessing upon his trip. And so he takes these steps. He, he submits himself to an oath with his master. He takes an oath and he, and he makes a promise. And now, as this prayer is laid out before the Lord, he is wanting to see God's providence show forth. He's ready to see it. And I like this pattern. And so I'm going to just reference it again. He takes an oath because it's that important that he, they submit to an oath. He makes some promises and now he's waiting for the providence of God to be put forth. This is a good pattern. I love it. It's absolutely, it's good for us to be careful when we are about our business in life. Sometimes we do take oaths. So I have taken an oath in the military to support and defend the Constitution. So I, that's an oath. I've taken an oath with my bride when I stood before a congregation. And you guys might have been there. I'm not sure. But... Um, we, we made a covenant with one another. There's an oath. And then, you know, that's very solemn. But then there's also times where we make promises, where we promise. And we need, and even as Seth, I think, encouraged us two weeks ago, be careful when we promise to make sure we follow, th- are able to follow through with those promises. And then be ready to watch God and his providence come forth as you're faithful in carrying out what you've been led by God to do. It's a good pattern. Beseeching the Lord in prayer that he, would, that, he would, that he would bless those works, those oaths, those promises, and then watching and waiting for, the, for God to, uh, to answer. And so the result, we're going to take a look at the result of this man's prayer, the faithful servant. The result is what we would like to see, right? We want to see... We want to see our our prayers be answered in this manner. And the result is the servant goes immediately to worship. He watches God answer the prayer. Before anything else, he worships God. In verse 27, this is what we read. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The prayer is answered. He immediately, he immediately goes to the Lord and praises God. He blesses God, blesses God. And in doing so, he's given testimony to this young maiden that's standing there before him, to Rebecca. She's within earshot, so she's having to hear this man, before he really engages with her all that much, like just bow down before God and start praising God for answering the prayer. And this serves as a witness to her about the Lord's working, which is great. It's a testimony. The faithfulness of the, of the servant leads to this faithful witness of God Almighty being at work in the situation that she's a part of. And then the whole story gets repeated. Okay, if you we're picking up on that in the scripture reading, everything that we've covered up until this part now gets told again to the family, gets told again. 
The, it's repeated between, before Rebecca's brother Laban, verses 34 through 48, as a retelling of all that has happened. But I don't want you to miss out on the significance of the answered prayer. The answered prayer. So the prayer was answered. And in a way, it stands as a witness. I've already mentioned that. But just look at verse 51 in the text. After this, this whole story is retold to Laban, in verse 51, the text reads, Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So we don't have anywhere in this text that the Lord has necessarily spoken, but the Lord has answered the prayer, a very specific prayer. God's character was appealed to, his steadfast love. The specifics of the prayer were, were very applicable to the situation at hand, answered exactly as prayed. And this is coming out. And now it stands as a witness. And here's this man, most likely a pagan, who says, as the Lord has spoken, let it be done. It stands. It stands as truth in this home. The answered prayer is given as testimony to these people, and they respond, do as the Lord has spoken. Do as the Lord has spoken. The answered prayer stands as a witness to the Lord's working in this matter, and there's no refuting it. They can't say, no, this is coincidence. The, the, the story is too specific. The answer to prayer is exact. So be of good cheer, believers, and pray and seek God in this manner. And watch as he works. And allow it to stand as a witness to his validation of your pursuit of him and his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And God's working. And, it, and you're going to see it. And I urge you to pray like this. To take, and then take a look at this prayer again this week. Take a look at the servant's prayer. And then see if you can adopt it into your prayer life and something you're working through. Appeal to God's character. Lay out wise criteria for what needs to be answered. That needs to be met in the circumstances that you're facing, specific to you, in your home, or in your workplace, or whatever it might be. Here, we see that the, the servant, he was after a wife for Isaac. He prayed accordingly. And God answered. And he closes the prayer with an appeal to God's character, his steadfast love and faithfulness. Church, we need to pray like this. This is a wonderful pattern of prayer. And it proves your faith while you watch expectantly for the Lord's will to be done. This faithful servant, he embodied he embodied the faith of his master. He was discipled in life-on-life -life living. He was very competent. I believe that this man was extremely competent in his ability to handle his master's affairs. But what does he do? He doesn't just rely upon his own ability. He turns to his faith. He says, God, use what you've, what you've given me, but then bless it by your working. And this honors God. And substantially, the result that comes about is a moving forward of the covenant of God. God said that through Isaac, the offspring would be named. In order for Isaac to have offspring, he does need a wife. And this is part of that, mo that movement. We said that God is revealing his plan of redemption throughout the book of Genesis. And we're just seeing another piece of that moving forward here as now Rebekah is ready to come. And now, forming a new covenant, our last point. The whole reason the story is here in our Bibles is because it's helping to move along the story of redemption. The, the promise, Isaac, children are to be, be produced through him. And the covenant is to continue. Genesis 17, 19 says so. And God's intention from the beginning from before the fall, at the very beginning of creation is for procreation to occur. 
He has a man and a woman, and he says they're to leave father and mother and go and to hold fast to one another, and to become one flesh, and for them to form a new relationship, one seen as even stronger than a blood relationship, which is quite profound. One author I was reading in preparation said, marriage is the most profound bond that exists between two human beings. Within it, nothing can be withheld. And later on in in the write-up, he was saying, all other relational claims are subordinate to those of marriage. One flesh entails a lifelong, exclusive clinging of one man to one woman in one life fully shared. I like this next part. It says, marriage puts a barrier around a husband and his wife and destroys all barriers between them. They belong fully to one another and to one another only. I took some time to to fill out that picture of marriage because I want us to now think of where Rebecca's at, okay? Consider with me here what we see in Genesis 24. Abraham is attempting to fulfill the promises of God. He commissions his servant, sends him back to the land where he came from, to his homeland, to find a wife for Isaac. The faithful servant takes the oath, he makes some promises, he goes on this journey, and God provides Rebecca. God prospers the journey. And so now in the household of Rebecca, the question comes up. So, Rebecca, what do you think? Is this a good deal for you or not? In verse 58, she answers. But he said to them, okay, 58, let me get my spot here. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. That's it. It's, it's crazy. In light of all the information I just shared about marriage, you know, Rebekah's not immune to, the, to knowing what marriage means. In light of what we, we know of marriage, our own experiences, and, and thinking of other passages on marriage, I want to ask the church, I want to ask us, how would you advise Rebecca to answer that question? How would you? What, what criteria would you say, you know, Rebecca, check on this and check on that. Uh, and don't forget this. Seriously, what criteria have you put forward as necessary to enter into this most sacred covenant relationship between two people? What we see repeatedly from Scripture, here and elsewhere, is that it's the commitment. A commitment to the marriage. That's what's held up as the ideal. To be committed to the marriage. That's what it is. It's a commitment. It's a decision, for sure, that's to be entered into wisely. But once made without reservation, committed. This is punctuated in our chapter here. We know that Rebecca does make the choice to return with the servant to be the wife of Isaac. Bear in mind, sight unseen. She's only heard of him within the last 24 hours, most likely, because you know, we, we know from the text that the servant wants to go the very next day. Not a whole lot of time to think about it. Sight unseen. And she makes the decision. She makes the decision. She departs from the protection of her house that she was brought up in and goes on a journey to a far-off land that she's never been to. In many ways, this echoes the Abrahamic journey. So Abraham was called out from a land to go to another land. Rebecca is being called out from the land, same land that Abraham came from. And she responds like Abraham, in faith, she goes to join in to uh, the covenant, to the covenant promises of God into this new land. She acts in faith. Rebecca goes and she commits herself to marriage. Now, we're going to look briefly at Isaac, okay? So Isaac doesn't have a whole lot of a whole lot to do in our, in our story. Isaac 
when he receives the testimony of what the faithful servant was off doing, so as, as they come back together, Isaac and the servant have a little bit of a debrief. So Isaac is like, so uh, faithful servant, what, what's been going on? Well, Abraham, your father sent me to go get a wife for you, and I've brought her back. She's over there on the camels, or by the camels. And uh, so that's what I was off doing. And Isaac, all we have from the text is he accepts. He commits to the marriage. He's like, this is it. This is marriage. I'm committed. He takes his wife. He consummates the marriage. And the text says in verse 67, and she became his wife. And he loved her. It's a beautiful description. This whole story of faithfulness and obedience. The whole chapter, everyone is at their absolute best. It doesn't escape me that this is a high ideal. So we read through a story like this, and we're like, yeah, it's pretty high ideal. But it's here. It's in the text. And I'm not going to stand up here and say, now, this is exactly how we need to be. We're going to be like Abraham. We're going to be like this faithful servant. Uh, we need to be like Rebecca and Isaac. And then that's it. I can't do that. But what I can say is that we can, we can prove our faith. We can receive the challenges that are facing us and say, God, I'm struggling here, and I want you to prove my faith in this, whatever aspect it might be. And that, like what we saw in the characters here in Genesis 24, we can expect that the Lord's will will be done. I can confidently do that. That doesn't mean we, we don't look to ideal pictures in the Scripture, because we do see them. We see one here for sure. And the ideal pictures are helpful. I want to take us to another one, because as God's people, we're called to be obedient to the Lord. In Genesis, or excuse me, in Deuteronomy 5, 32-33, there's an ideal picture here. Moses, as he writes, says, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. That's obedience. That's a, that's a high calling. So when we come across passages like this, we have to face these very real questions. We have to say, what kind of land am I looking for? Am I looking for it to be ideal here and now? In this present place? Or can I be content with an ideal land that the Lord promises me, that is my inheritance, and I can look forward to that while living faithfully here? For each one of us, we're facing the realities of living in a sinful world. We are constantly dealing with the brokenness, the fallout, the hurt that comes with dealing with sin. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, it's a very real temptation to say, Lord, come now. Come now. Let's be done with this. But we don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We, like Abraham, need to be faithful. We need to be faithfully about our master's business, like that ideal servant. He was faithfully about the master's business. And as a reminder, we serve at the pleasure of a king. We serve at the pleasure of a king who, be, who was the preeminent servant, who laid aside all of his majesty to come and to serve us and then to take his rightful seat at the right hand of the Father. And what King Jesus says in John 14 is, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that, that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know that the way to where I am going, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is what we look with hope upon. This is why we can live faithfully where we are now in a sinful and broken world with the backdrop of our own setbacks, the own, our own hurts, our own maladies. I'll say in closing that in order to prove your faith and watch the Lord's will be done, you must treasure up in your heart his steadfast love and faithfulness. Have it written on the tablet of your heart and trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have been able to work through this passage where this faithful servant was about his master's business, God, we want to be like that. We want to be about your business, Lord. We want to be continually refined, that we would pray as the servant prayed, that we would lift up your steadfast love and faithfulness, your hesed, your, your care for us in such a manner that we are just before you, bowing down in worship. When you answer our prayers, that we would worship you first and foremost and not just move on like you didn't do something amazing on our behalf. Lord, we belong to you. We are your people. You work in ways that we cannot fathom. So when we pray, may we pray specific prayers. May we pray in a manner that we know that you've answered that prayer. And may that stand as a witness and a testimony to our, our own faith and into the, the building up of others whom we are working to carry along in their faith, that you would improve and, and grow us in our sanctification as a church, as families, as a community. We want to see your love abound. We thank you for this ideal picture set before us in Genesis 24. Use the preaching of your word, God, this week. Impress it upon us. Make us return to your word and pray to you. We pray expectantly that you would prove our faith, that you would have your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.